Today is, is March 15th, the Ides of March, and it's an appropriate day for us to be in the passage we're in. Be, uh, beware the Ides of March, the soothsayer bids you. Um, that This is a very Shakespeare-like uh, tragic section of um, our, in our study of Second Kings. Um, the Ides of March is that notorious date that became notoriously famous for the assassination of Julius Caesar, and it's recounted in Shakespeare's work. We are in for a wild ride today, and next week, really. So let's buckle up and let's get going. These are, these are not the Bible stories you probably grew up hearing in, in uh, vacation Bible school or in Sunday school. I doubt that in the history of children's Sunday school around the world, there has probably ever been a teacher that used flannel graph to show people eating donkey heads and pigeon poop. Um, this is, these are not the big stories, but these are, as Justin said, thank you, brother, for setting this up so well. This is so important for us. It's part of God's revealed word, and, and we, we want to see what he has to teach us from it today. We're taking a large chunk of kings today, and we'll, and we'll be doing that many weeks through the rest of the spring. But we're going to try to tie all these stories together. We have severe famine. We have cannibalism. We have uh, a would-be assassin who's trampled to death. We have four uh, leper outcasts that are turned into evangelists. Then we have in the middle of this this very encouraging personal story about a woman that we've met before in our study of kings, a dear godly saint. And then we go back to ugliness, a man smothering the Syrian king to death with his bed sheet. Judah in just this death spiral as a nation. And then all of the pieces, but when we finish today, all of the pieces will be set up for, finally, for the downfall of Ahab's household. And we'll look at that next week. We've been asking this question throughout our studies of kings, our study of, of kings, and it's a question we should always ask when we study really any portion of Scripture is what is what is this passage teach me about God? What is God doing in this text? The Bible is is from God and is about God. And so we want to see God wherever we are in Scripture. And in this passage, in these chapters, God is doing many things and you'll you'll see it. His hand will be all over these pages. He's protecting his people. He's speaking his word. He's predicting and controlling the future. He's interpreting history. He's using unlikely people as his messengers of good news. He's defending the needy. He's raising up kings. He's bringing down kings. He's he's keeping his covenant. He's executing justice. Just over and over we see God at work in these chapters. And so it's, it's always important and necessary for us to see that. But another question we can ask and should ask in studying the Bible is, what does this teach us about us, about humanity? What do we learn about people? And in, in our text this morning, we see people responding in different ways to God and to God's revelation through his prophet. God reveals himself through his word and through mighty deeds and miracles and and yet not everyone responds with faith and in obedience and repentance. You have two examples here of those who refuse to believe God. And you have one who gladly believes God and takes him at his word. And so we'll see that this morning. And, and so we're going to look at, we're going to kind of break the text down in this way. We're going to look at these three types of hearts. And, and as I mentioned there, and then we're going to see how the passage sets us up. For next week and the bloody mess that is to come. And so let's go there. The first thing that we'll see is this tale of three hearts. And how the different ways in which people respond to God and his word. The first heart that we see is the impatience of a superficial heart. The impatience of a superficial heart. Now we'll explain when we'll see it in verse 30 what we mean by a superficial heart. So just hold on to that. But the, the context of... Of chapter six here, we were just here last week, and and Syria raided Israel, um, and then they then they come after Elisha and try to try to take him out, uh, but God protects him, and yet now we have tensions with Syria have have escalated dramatically, that there they execute a full scale war on Israel, siege warfare, and siege warfare is is awful. But it is very effective and has been throughout history. And so there's this 
chokehold that's placed upon the capital city of Samaria and really the nation of Israel, but but for an extended period of time, period of time we see in verse 24. And so the effect of this siege on Samaria is gradual, but it's it's catastrophic. There's a, there becomes this great famine, the text says, in the city. And so the conditions there, they grow, they grow terrible. The people are, are literally starving to death. I know some of you teenagers, by the end of Sunday school, you'll say, I'm starving to death. You, know, now they're, they're, look, you see the chaos and the confusion and the, and the desperation as the food supply, supplies have just disappeared and dwindled to nothing. And, and, and we read the text just a moment ago. There, there are these profiteers who are taking advantage of the people's hunger and desperation. And they're, they're selling virtually inedible things at, at outlandish prices. Things normally discarded as trash and so unclean donkey heads and dove droppings, pigeon manure. They're being sold as food at ridiculously high prices. Verse 25. But that's not the worst part. Inflated prices for worthless food. No, the writer tells us about, tells us about this woman who, who cries out to the king for help. In verse 26. In the midst of this famine. And the king of Israel, in responding to her, he takes a cheap shot at Yahweh. Verse 26. If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor, the wine press. What he's saying is, God won't help you, so I can't help you. I can't thresh. I can't. I can't uh, press what what God doesn't provide. If there's no grain or grapes, and that's the Lord's fault, I can't do anything for you. That's what he's saying. It's his accusation. He can't hide his anger against the Lord. He thinks this famine is is the result of. Of a failure on God's part. And this is not new for this king. This is Jehoram most likely. The Jehoram king of Israel. This is exactly how he responded in the Moab crisis if you remember. This is his instinct in times of trouble. He doesn't lean upon the everlasting arms of God. No, he points his finger at God and and he blames him. This is your fault. But he asks her. He says, verse 28, what is your trouble? The trouble is that one woman is angry at another woman. I know that is hard to imagine, that scenario, right? No, sorry. But the reason is unbelievable. They, they made a pact to cannibalize their own sons. They, they would eat one child one day, then the next child the next day. But, but the second woman breaks the pact. And she's accused of hiding her son, so that he won't be eaten. And so the woman who's complaining to the king, she, she demonstrates no really sense of shame about her actions of eating her own son and making this pact. No, her outrage is about the unfairness of the other woman. He, she's in a tizzy because she wants the king to take her side and defend her right to eat that other woman's son. That's what's happening. That's how bad it is. This is ugly. I mean, there's hardly anything worse that can be imagined can be imagined than this. It's gut wrenching that they're so physically desperate that they would they would they would that it would come to this. And it's mostly though sad that they're so morally destitute, that they would stoop to this level. This is not unique in world history, though. Even in more recent history, in the 1930s in Ukraine, there was a great famine. It was also a man-made famine. Joseph Stalin, uh, by military force, cut off the food supply in Ukraine and just starved the people to death. Murder by hunger is what it was called. Three to seven million people are estimated died uh, during this famine. And, and many report, there are many reports of babies that were eaten alive during the famine. Sometimes children would just disappear and everybody knew, all the villagers knew exactly what had happened. Cannibalism was everywhere. So this is the scenario. 
But as wicked as King Jehoram is, he rightly reacts with horror at the woman's predicament. So when he hears the story, the text says that he cried out to the Lord, confessed the wickedness of Israel, confessed his own covenant infidelity before the Lord, pled for God's mercy and provision. That's not what it says, does it? We'll see what he did do in a moment, but that's not that. Not, not even these awful circumstances are enough to shake him from a spiritual slumber. That's the first thing under here I want you to see is that superficiality, and we'll, we'll see how that shows up in his heart in a moment, but it's not cured by catastrophe alone. And, and we, we think like this sometimes. We, sometimes God does use our circumstances and awful circumstances in life to wake people up, but, but that kind of catastrophe is not a, enough in itself. So there's a prodigal who's, who's rejected the Lord and he's, he's dying of cancer. And we think, well, God, God's going to use this to wake them up. Maybe he will. Maybe. But not necessarily. It may harden his heart even more against the Lord. I mean, circumstances aren't enough. God, God has to work. God's spirit has to work to arrest their hearts and, and, and get a hold of their affections. But in response to the scene, the king is in great sorrow. But instead of turning to the Lord, the text says that he tears off his clothes. That's his response. And when he does, he reveals to everyone around him that underneath his outer garments, he's wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth, that symbol of repentance. Verse 30. He has, he has the external signs of repentance. This would have been the proper external garb if you truly are repentant. But his heart shows there is no genuine repentance before God. And we know this by what happens next. He doesn't explode in anger at his sin. He doesn't explode in anger at Baal. He explodes in anger against God and his prophet Elisha. Verse 31. May God do to me and more also if the head of Elisha remains on his shoulders today. And that, that would be funny almost if it wasn't so tragic. What in the world did Elisha do? He didn't cause this. He's just spoken truth. Elisha's a convenient scapegoat. It's easier to kill the messenger than it is to listen and heed the message. That's what we see in Jehoram's life. It's superficial repentance. Superficial heart. Acts like he cares what God thinks, but he really doesn't. Elisha is the nation's chief asset. It's a gift from God to the people of Israel and to the king. But Jehoram treats him as if he's this great liability and wants to eradicate him. He may have sackcloth on on the outside, but... He's doggedly unrepentant on the inside, in his heart. So I'd say a superficial heart, it tries to fake godly grief, but it does so to no avail. No avail. We, we see through it. And, well, we can be such religious posers too, can't we? we? I mean, and believe me, pastors are not exempt from this temptation. We can, we can try to wear the external si- signs of a... Humility and a contrite heart and brokenness before God. And we know when to shed the tear. And we know, we know how to demonstrate externally that, that what we want people to think is true of us internally. We can be fakers. But God sees through it all. We cannot fool Him. And that is a, that is a dangerous, dangerous way to live. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's a good thing. Godly sorrow. It's a gift from God. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief or worldly grief, it, it doesn't really care about sin. It only cares about the consequences of sin. It's superficial. Worldly grief doesn't really seek God. It only seeks relief. Worldly grief doesn't wait on God. It bypasses God. This is what we see in Jehoram. And this is what we know of our own hearts and the tendencies of our own lives. Well, the writer tells us, as we read, that the writer gives, uh, God gives Elisha a heads up on what's going down here. He He tells Elisha that the king is after his head. 
And so before the assassin arrives, Elisha tells the men who are with him, he says, block the door. But before they even get the door blocked, um, the, the killer arrives and says, this trouble is from the Lord. And he's right in a sense, isn't it? I mean, the, the disaster was God's judgment on the nation. But what does he do with that little nugget of truth? And then he says, why should I wait on the Lord any longer? That's the impatience of, of this superficial heart. Why, why wait? Why wait on the Lord? Why trust in the Lord? Why seek Him any longer? He has this kind of utilitarian view of religion. I tried it, but it didn't work, so I'm looking to other things. God didn't come through, so he takes matters into his own hands. But he's wrong. This is not how we should think. He should have said something like this. This trouble is from the Lord. Therefore, as the words of Psalm 130 say, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... Oh, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in God, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him there is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's what he should have said. He says, this trouble is from the Lord. Why wait? Why wait? Any longer. Why wait on the Lord? Is your view of God utilitarian? Is God kind of like a tool in your toolbox? He has usefulness for some jobs at some certain times, but most of the time you can kind of leave him in the box. Or maybe you try him and it doesn't seem to work. And you use all the force that you can, but something's wrong with the tool. And so you set them aside. Beware of the impatience of a superficial heart. We Beware of an outward show of religion while not having a truly believing, repentant, faithful, worshiping heart on the inside. Jesus called out the Pharisees for this kind of nonsense over and over particularly at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 23, one of the occasions. So also, you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Beware of showy hypocrisy. Beware of Bible Belt Christianity. I mean, this is, we're eat up in, with this stuff in, in the South. The appearance of righteousness, the appearance of religiosity, the appearance of humility and faithfulness to God without it truly being the expression of our hearts. So the impatience of a superficial heart. The second thing we see, exhibit, exhibit B here, how not to respond to God is the, the cynicism of a skeptical heart. The cynicism of a skeptical heart. In chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Elisha makes two predictions and the first one is this, is that within 24 hours time, food is going to be available in great supply and it's going to be cheap. Now, that is hard to believe, but certainly good news. <laughs> if it's true, barley is a lot better than donkey head, I would think, uh, in terms of nutritional value and taste. Um, but Jehoram's captain, we read this, he just laughs, scoffs at this prediction Verse 2, he says, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, how could this thing? He's just mocking the prophet. And so the prophet gives a second prediction, the end of verse 2, that 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 cynic, that captain, is going to die. He's going to see lots of food tomorrow, but he's not going to eat any of it. And so the skeptic then cracks jokes about God's promises instead of trusting them. After all the times that God spoke and it was accomplished, after all that the king and his servants and his captains have seen God's word, God says something through his prophets, it always comes to pass. Elisha has a perfect track record. Yet it doesn't matter. The cynic won't believe. He won't. 
And that's true in our day. Skeptics are never, never satisfied. You may be one of them sitting in the congregation that no amount of reasoning or evidence will be enough to make a doubter believe in God, not those things in themselves. But maybe if they saw a miracle, maybe then they would believe. Well, Jesus begs to differ. He tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and Luke chapter 16 and says they they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Nothing's going to convince them if they don't believe what God has plainly revealed. In other words, the problem with skepticism and with skeptics is not insufficient reason to believe in God. That's not it. God's word is sufficient. His promises are enough. His track record is perfect. He's spoken plainly. The problem is not a lack of proof. The problem is our unbelieving hearts, our blind, blinded eyes. We just won't believe. We have to be made new. So, so these are the predictions. This is the skepticism of the crack jokes. They don't trust God's promises, but God keeps his promises. And he does so in this text in the most unexpected of ways. In verses 3 and following, we have these four um, surprising characters. These four unnamed lepers enter into the story here. Now, during a time of famine, everybody was was miserable. But those on kind of the fringe of society, on the edges of society, they were the most vulnerable. And lepers would have been at the top of that list. They weren't allowed in the city. They were forced to live at the city gates, just begging for food of anybody who might pass through the gates, just to get scraps. But again, nobody had food. So they're they're on the edge of annihilation. And so in this story, though, it's these men with absolutely nothing to lose. They become the first ones to to see and enjoy the fulfillment of God's promise through Elisha and then to declare it. And so they're, they're sitting there by the gate. They're starving to death and they use some logic. Verse 4, he say, he say, basically, if we enter the city, if we try to go back in the city, either we'll be killed by people or we'll die of starvation because they're starving to death in there. There's no, nothing, nothing to gain by going in the city. But then they say, well, if we stay outside the gate, well, we'll either die by the sword of the Syrians or we're going to die of famine and starvation here. So we're, we're, we're done. Any way you look at it, we're toast. And so they figure, well, there's nothing to lose. So they decide to defect to the enemy. They decide to defect to the Syrians. We'll probably be executed, but maybe, just, just maybe, they will, they'll have mercy on us and we'll find refuge in their camp with the Syrians. And so when they get to the Syrian camp, wow, no Syrians. They're gone. What happened? Verse 6 and 7 tell us that the Lord made the Syrians to, to hear the sound of a great army and chariots and horses. So they, they take off. They think the, the Israel has, has help from two nations coming from the north and the south. And they're going to be pinched and surrounded. And so they just bolt. They leave everything behind and get out of there. The text says they fled away in the twilight, verse 7. Leave everything behind. And so the lepers come into the Syrian camp, Syrian camp and there's this treasure trove that awaits them. Food and silver and gold and animals and clothing. All of this is just sitting there. Meals still being prepared on the fire. And so they, they don't know how it happened. And they don't care. They just jump right in and stuff their faces with food. And so just tent after tent, they find treasures. These four outcasts of Israel, leprous outcasts, are just going through living like kings. They're plundering the camp, filling their bellies, enjoying themselves. And then they have a little moral dilemma. Their conscience to start panging them. Verse 9, they say, we're not doing right. Not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. They're saying, how can we keep this good news to ourselves? That's like a missionary text, isn't it? This is for all of us, really. I mean, evangelism has been described as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. 
And that's what that's what that's the picture here. So they go back to the city. They report the good news to the king. Verse ten. But the king's king's not buying their story. Mm-mm. No, he's he's dug in in his unbelief. It is deep seated. And so Jehoram thinks it's a trap, verse 11 and 12. The Assyrians are trying to lure the Israelites outside of the city so they can attack and kill them. And so I, I just say this. I think one implication is, is that social rejects here, they grasp reality better than cynical skeptics. Now, skeptics pride themselves on, on their, they, they believe that they see things right, they see things as they really are. And it's not true. It's not true. Those with nothing to lose are better than have a better spot to see and believe the truth than those who think they have nothing to gain from God. Just case in point of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians one, Paul makes this point very clear. He says to the Jews, it's it's foolishness. To the to the Gentiles, it's, or to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to us, to those who are being saved, it's the very power and wisdom of God. And you know who those who are being saved are? Paul goes on to say they're the, they're the weak, the, the, the foolish, the low, the despised, the things that are not. Just, we're just a bunch of nothings. But yet, God has this has peculiar habit of, of, of um, using unnamed, unlikely, uninfluential, unimportant, unimpressive people. To, to save them and to use them as his, as his bearers of good news, which is what these lepers are. So God, God does this. One of Jehoram's officers, though, back to the text, he makes an appeal to the king. He basically says, let's, let's at least check their story out. And he uses the same logic that the lepers use. He's like, what do we have to lose? I mean, he, so he suggests, let's send out... Let's send out a few horses and a few men, kind of as decoys, to go and check their story out. But, he, but he's saying, what do we have to lose? The guys that we send out, yeah, it's a suicide mission. But if they stay in the city, they're going to die of starvation anyway. And so might as well die doing a little reconnaissance work for the king. And so they send these guys out. But when they go out, they find that the leper story is absolutely true. So... Come back, news spreads, the city rushes out to plunder the Syrian camp, and instantly they have quality food at low, low prices. Sound like a grocery store ad. Um, just as Elisha had predicted, no more donkey head to eat. And Elisha's second prediction comes to pass then. It, it just so happened, and I'm saying that sarcastically, it just so happened that the the captain, that the king's captain, who was the cynic, is stationed at the city gate when news begins to spread. And so this hungry mob from, the, from Samaria just rushes out the, of the gates. And the, and the text says that they trampled this captain to death, fulfilling God's word through the prophet. He saw food, but he ate none, just as Elisha had promised the sarcastic word of the skeptic will not be the last word. It wasn't here, it won't be in our day. And the account is repeated two times in the verses. It's, it, it, the, the writer is trying to impress upon us just the, the absolute precision with which the Lord fulfills His word. Right down to the smallest detail. And it, it's unquestionably God who is the one who gives victory and God who gives relief. Through the prophet. It's not the king. It's not the army. The text is explicit. This all happened according to the word of the Lord. It was God's word. The whole scene is there to remind us to believe God's word. Don't mock it. Don't ignore it. Don't oppose it. Don't question it. Believe it. It's always true. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. God is not going to be mocked. Well, then we, we change, change gears rather abruptly in the beginning of chapter 8. Chapter 8 opens with a brief paragraph that takes us out of that national 
military political realm into a very personal story. And, and we hear, find here a, a positive example of trust in the Lord that it stands out against that backdrop of unbelief that's been so prevalent so far in the book of Kings. And so we find the obedience then of a soft heart in chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. We meet a familiar face in, in these verses. And it's the, it's the woman who was so hospitable to Elisha and the, one, the woman whom Elisha had helped earlier in chapter 4 of Second Kings. And so verse 1, Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. What a refreshingly different response to God's word. What a contrast. This lady is a is the symbol of, of the believing remnant of, of God's people here. They acted on the basis of God's word. She's, she's a perfect picture of that. When God says go, the soft, soft heart only asks how far. And I'm trying to be cute there. You know, when, when I say jump, all you need to ask is how high, that kind of a thing. But basically when God says go, she, she goes. She goes. She, she is... She just obeys. There's no evidence. There's no detailed plans that are laid out for her. There's not like, well, when you get there, you're gonna, you need to find this house and there was a contact person that God's put there. No, none of that. It just says, leave. You gotta go far. So she leaves. Ends up in Philistia. Seven years. Is that your response to God's word? Do you, do you, God has said so much to us in this book. We have so many instructions, so many Commands, is your heart inclined to simply say, yes, Lord? Or do you want to explain it away? Or do you want to rationalize your behavior? Or do you want to find teachers who will tell you something that's more palatable to you? Or, or do you want to drag your feet or think of exceptions? But she, we, we, we need to say, yes, yes, Lord. I'll, I'll do it. Whatever you say. Yes, Lord. I, I just ask the women, as you're there on the retreat this weekend, this so to be the... Inclination of your heart. Don't go in with your fist up. Don't don't go in trying to protect and preserve um, stuff in your life that you know is not right, but you really don't want God to mess with it right now. This is not the time, not the place. And they'll say, God, whatever you have for me, God, speak to me. Help me. Help me to obey you. And to say yes, Lord. Well, and you, and you see another contrast with the king. She, she waits patiently on the Lord for seven years. The, the time away, it spares her from famine, but it, it doesn't spare her from other problems. It, in fact, it creates other problems. It seems that while she's away, she's lost her husband. He's not mentioned in the text like he, like he was in chapter 4. And, and when she returns, she's lost the claim on her land. That, and that's really the issue. That's what comes up in verses 3 and following. That she's vulnerable, she's destitute, she needs help, she needs a defender. So she, she goes to the royal court and she, and to make a desperate plea to get her land back. When she came home, someone else was occupying her land. Whether the king took it over, like his dad took over Naboth's vineyard, or, or what. We don't, we're not exactly sure, but somehow it's being occupied by somebody else and she's lost her claim on it. Her only source of livelihood is this widow. And so in a bizarre coincidence and a Ruth kind of way, Gehazi, remember Elisha's servant Gehazi, he just happens to be talking with the king about this lady at the same time that she walks in to make her plea to the king. Now, as a side note, what in the world is Gehazi doing here? Isn't he the, didn't when he struck with leprosy, Back in chapter 5, he absolutely was. But what probably this is, this is an episode that, um, or the episode of the healing of Naaman, that probably occurred after this scene. So it's not chronological here. It's this, this little episode is here for a purpose. We'll come back to that at the end. But it's, it's, it's kind of steps out of chronology here. So just as at the moment, Gehazi is talking to the king and, and telling the king how Elisha restored this woman's Dead son to life, the woman and her son appear. Verse 5, here is the woman, behold, and here is the son whom Elisha restored to life. Imagine that. 
And so the king then asks the woman to tell her story, and she does. And, and then he issues orders that for her land to be returned to her, along with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Basically, all of the income of that land from the seven years she was away is restored to her. It's, it's incredible. God providentially cares for this woman, this woman who's rightly related to God's word. It wasn't easy for her. Don't think that. She was a widow. She was a sojourner. She, she had to deal with this bureaucracy. She had, she had uncertainty. She had weary travel. She was gone for seven years in a foreign land. But God provided for her needs. God is very resourceful then when it comes to helping those who take him at his word. Things we see here. Proverbs, or excuse me, Psalm 37, 25. The psalmist says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Or there's children begging for bread. God always looks out for the welfare of his people. That's not, I, I know that's easy to say for most of us when, when the 401k is growing and the pantry is full of food and the children are healthy and, and, and everything's going well and the paychecks are coming in. But this is always true when those things are not happening. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, and, and he's complaining to the Lord, the wicked are prospering, they're growing fat, and here I am, I'm poor, and I'm just wasting away, I have nothing to eat. And, and yet God graciously gives him a change of perspective. God does not change his circumstances. It's not like he just gets a... Uh, a boatload of money that comes in, and so that's what turns it around for Elisha. No, he, he's worshiping God, and God changes the way he's viewing things. And he concludes that psalm saying, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. My flesh, my heart, they may fail. That is a, that is a, that is a real possibility. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. God cares for his people at all times. Believe that. And the rest of chapter 8, and I'll just, we'll, maybe we'll just read through it here and I'll make a few comments along the way. We have some important details that are filled in for us and, and some loose ends that are kind of tied up. And then the next movement that will start in chapter 9 is, is set up for us. But we begin with the fulfillment of Elijah's final instructions. And this is going way back to 1 Kings chapter 19. When before Elijah departed, God told him to anoint Elisha, Hazael, and Jehu. Uh, so one prophet, two kings. And, and, and so he did anoint Elisha back in 1 Kings 19. But we never heard anything about the anointing of the other two men. Well... It, what happens is God fulfills that through the prophet Elisha, and he does so here. And so, second thing we'll see, just kind of movement through the text, is this prophet with a broken heart in, in verses 7 to 15. So Ben-Hadad is old, he's sick, his health is failing, and he sends Hazael off to find Elisha, who just happens to be, again, we've said that a lot this morning, in Damascus, nearby. First time he's ever left Israel that were, that's recorded for us. And so the king wants to know if he's going to live or not, verse 7 and 8. And so, interestingly, he sends for this pagan king, sends for Israel's prophet to give him a prognosis of his condition. And so he, he tries to sweeten up the deal a little bit, so he sends, he sends this humongous gift to Elisha, uh, 40 camel loads of goods. If you want to know how much a camel load is, you can ask Kara. Maybe she's ridden a camel, so she can tell you. How much can a camel carry, Care? I'm putting her on the spot. She's the only one of my kids that might actually answer me. But, <laughs> um, but, but you have this humongous gift that, uh, that, that is sent to Elisha to kind of get a favorable word. And so uh, Ben-Hadad, he trusts this messenger, Hazael, obviously. And he has no idea how God is going to providentially use this, this arrangement and this decision to send him. And so Hazael brings the gift. He asks the question of Elisha, but Elisha's reply is very different than he expects. In verse 10, he says, you go say to Ben-Hadad, he says, you shall certainly recover. But then he says to Hazael, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. <laughs> well, what is that? 
It sounds like Elisha is telling him to deceive the king. The, 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 but the larger context makes the meaning clear. Ben-Hadad's illness is not fatal. That's not what he's going to die from. No. He's going to die because he's going to be murdered by Hazael. He will be killed. And Elisha, verse 11, interesting. Look, look at verse 11. He stares Hazael right in the eyes. He's just piercing, piercing his eyes, just piercing into the soul of this man. He's making it clear that he's reading him like a book. He knows the intentions of his heart. And Haziel, the text says, he turns away embarrassed or ashamed. And right then, Elisha begins to just break down and weep. He just weeps. He not only knows Haziel's intentions, but he knows, he knows the future, what's coming. That he will be one who wreaks havoc on Israel. Verse 12, Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And that's exactly what happens. For, for 30 plus years, he, he reigns in just bloody, brutal violence is committed against Israel. And while it's his sin to unleash these horrors on Israel, God uses Hazael as a, as a rod of judgment. He didn't cause Hazael to inflict this pain upon Israel, but he did use it to accomplish his judicial purposes with Israel. And so his response is striking. He says, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Verse 13. He, he's calling himself a mere dog, a nobody. And, but yet he hears Elisha's description of this brutality. And he hears of it as this great thing. Like it's this great feat. Like who, how could little old me pull off this great thing? This mock humility. He's a man drawn to power and violence. And Elisha leaves no doubt about the future. At the end of verse 13. The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And then events unfold quickly. He goes and he gives the king the message that he will recover. And it says the following day he takes a bedcloth, soaks it, the king's own bedcloth, soaks it in water, puts it over his face and holds it down and just chokes this guy out. And then he reigns in his place. Coronation by murder. And it makes it look like it died of natural causes. He was sick anyway and it was just a there's nothing laying there but a bed sheet. He gets away with it. And yet, Elisha, you see his brokenheartedness of the prophet. He knows what's coming. He knows that God is sovereign even over the evil of this man. And yet it crushes him. We see, God, we see this sorrow in God's messengers in other places. Ezekiel, he speaks on behalf of Yahweh. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Paul said, for many of whom I've often told you now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction. Jesus comes and just weeps as he looks over the city of Jerusalem. God must judge sinners, but he is slow to anger and abundant in mercy. When judgment comes, there's, there's this divine, there's an element of divine sadness to it. There's, one writer says, tears fall with fire and brimstone. And I just say, if, for, for us, if, if people are going to refuse to believe in Jesus Christ and head off to destruction, then they ought to do so walking through a puddle of our prayerful tears. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Do we have that kind of brokenheartedness? I don't think God is going to bless a, a tearless church that doesn't weep for the lost. That's so foreign to the heart of God. God, give us brokenness for souls that hopeless without you. So, well, we, we'll, we need to stop there. Let me 
just fast forward again. And one of the things that I think is is interesting, and, and basically what happens at the end of chapter eight, we have we, we've kind of the 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 story of Israel is the pause button is pushed, and then the writer of Kings advances the story of the southern kingdom of Judah and kind of brings it up so they run parallel again. And so he's kind of catching us up on what's happened in the south. And Elisha's not been involved in the south, but you know what has been involved in the south? God's promise to David. And that's, what the, that's really what he's showing. The kings of the south become just as bad as the kings of the north. They, they, they walk in the sins of Ahab. They intermarry with Ahab's family. They commit the same idolatry. Baalism just becomes entrenched in Judah. And all kinds of wicked wickedness are going on in the southern kingdom and in, in, in the tribe of Judah. And, yet, and what the text says, though, is yet, verse 19, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give him a lamp to him and to his sons forever. God, by his grace, preserves a lamp in Judah and, and, and did until the coming of Jesus Christ. And so God, God keeps him. But it just is this death spiral for Judah and Israel. Things just, it's just decline. That's the storyline of kings. Decline, decline, decline. And, and at the end of the chapter, so Jehoram, uh, so we get up, Jehoram, um, king of Judah. Now this just gets confusing because there's Jehoram of Israel, Jehoram of Judah, Ahaziah of Israel, Ahaziah of Judah. But Jehoram, king of Judah, he, he dies of a severe bowel disease and, and his son Ahaziah becomes king in his place and he continues to walk in the sins of his father and of Ahab. And at the end of chapter 8, it basically is this, is that... Um, you have Ahaziah going to keep company with Jehoram, king of Israel. They've gone out to battle against Hazael, the Syrian, now Syrian king. So they go out and battle against Hazael, try to fight him off, and Jehoram of Israel is injured. And so Ahaziah of Judah goes and to, to keeps this other king company, and they go and meet in Jezreel, and they're there spending time together. And and. And what, is, what that is doing is setting us up for the, this drastic change that is going to come in chapter 9 and 10. And there's going to be a bloody, bloody mess starting next week. I'm not trying to say that to scare you away. Kids are welcome to come. But it, change is coming and it's going to come violently. There's this divinely ordered setup having both of these kings in the same place at the same time. And so I just leave that with you. God is ordering all of this. Using and exploiting the wickedness of men. But it's interesting. In the story of all of this decline, of all this ugliness, all this awfulness, we have this little episode with the Shunammite woman. Right in the middle of it. It's not chronological, but it's, it's, it's placed there by God's design. And I would just say, one of the things it shows us, it's possible to have this strong, vibrant, growing confidence and faith in God, even in the midst of just when you're surrounded by evil and all kinds of awfulness. Philippians 2, 14, 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So you could be this light in a dark world. Let me just, just real quickly, and then we'll conclude. So hang with me just for a couple more minutes. To, to be a bright light in a, in a dark world, and we need that. We need to be that. It does not mean you have to be an impressive person. There are Daniels and there are Josephs, but there are also Shunammite women. She's, she's nothing special about her inner self. Anybody can be this bright light. You may feel like you're, with your station in life, you, you, what can you do? How can you shine for the Lord? You can. This is an encouragement to us. Second. Being a bright light in a dark world does not mean you retreat from the world. You just you check out. It's, the answer is not building a religious compound and you keep the world out. No, this this is this woman is is engaged and she's in different places and other lands and she's not anti-government. So I know some of you you want to view the government as your enemy and some of you want to view the government as your savior. It's neither. And so so the the Shunammite woman appeals to the king. God provides for her through a wicked king. God is sovereign over kings and the decisions that they make. So it doesn't mean we retreat out of the world. It, it also means that as we are a bright light in the dark world, that it means that you wait for the Lord when everyone else is, is demanding immediate ease and comfort. 
You're patient. You trust God. You trust His timing. You trust His provision. That's, you're going to stand out. It means that our personal trials become opportunities for the light of the gospel to shine brightly. And I don't know why God is allowing what you're going through right now. Some of you are going through some hard things. And I can't say like this is the... Let me, let me give you the answer of why this is happening. But I can assure you that it is not meaningless. It is not. God wastes no trial. He uses every single one of it and every little part of it for good, for your good and for His glory. And in your weakness, in your brokenness, in your sorrow, that it is real. I'm not saying trying to gloss over that and say, well, just... Just be happy. No. In those in that in brokenness, let a grumbling free faith and confidence in God shine as a bright light in a dark world. And then finally I'd say, if, if as we shine in a bright it means that we need to give verbal witness to God's life giving work. The Shunammite testified before the king of God's power to raise the dead. We have the word of life, Paul says in Philippians. We testify to God's power over death. Uh, through the life and, and death and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so we shine not just by living a life of faith and joy, but by giving verbal witness. And it's a great time of year for us to do that, church. Let's be active. We, got, we have opportunities with Easter coming up and opportunities to speak with people about Jesus Christ. And it's this timely occasion for us. And so I encourage you, again... We're having a Good Friday service this year. We've not done that before. And so both the Good Friday, it'll be a shortened service, but on Friday evening um, we'll have a service right here. And on both East, that and Easter Sunday will be more evangelistically geared. And so please use those invite cards. They're downstairs and take a bunch of those and, and pass those out uh, at your workplaces, at your school students, and among your neighbors. Well, let's pray together. Uh, we Father, we thank you for... Uh, just the, um, the the certainty that we have that every promise that you've spoken to us is true, God. And we know we have great confidence as those in Christ that you will keep us to the end, and that not one of not one of us will be lost out of your hand. And th- so, thank you for that assurance. No matter what's going on in our lives, you you both meet our needs and you will you will hold on to us, God. And so, we thank you for the assurances that we have. Through your word, help us to believe them, to stake our lives on them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.